Amen. Thank you so much for that. Let's take our Bibles together this morning and go to the book of Genesis, chapter number 45, please. The 45th chapter in the book of Genesis is where we'll be this morning. And I'm so grateful for the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. I am thankful. I know who I am. You may not know as much about me as I know about me. And of course, no one knows about me what the Lord knows about me. But he loves us anyway. Aren't you grateful for that truth? And uh, that really is what the Christmas season is all about. Uh, it is the coming of the Lamb of God. And he's not here just to provide us with another holiday, uh, an opportunity to perhaps boost the retail industry. That's not why he came. He's not here to give us just a nice story to talk about. He came to take away our sin. That's, that's why he came. That's what it's all about. And uh, I am grateful for his willingness to make this sacrifice for us. Genesis chapter number 45 is where we are this morning, and this is the beginning of such a beautiful and wonderful season, and I really think that what makes Christmas special is the church, and I mean that with all of my heart. Of course, you come in this morning, and you see the decorations, and it's beautiful in here. There is a spirit of expectation. You hear the music, whether it be the vocalists or the instrumentalists, and there's a whole lot more of that to come in the next several weeks. Of course, I remind you, two weeks from this weekend will be our church's uh, presentation of their Christmas concert, Oh Holy Light, and a Saturday night at 6 o'clock on December the 16th, and then Sunday night at 6 o'clock on December the 17th. And our folks, many of them have been busy uh, preparing and, uh, and getting ready for this, and I believe it'll be a blessing to all those who participate in it, and I would encourage you to invite someone to come and to be your guest on that weekend, and we'll trust the Lord to do a great work. We're in Genesis chapter number 45 this morning. As a church, we've been journeying through the life of Joseph, and so we'll continue that journey this morning. And uh, we have just uh, last week talked about uh, Joseph revealing himself to his brothers, and what a, what a, uh, what a uh, dramatic passage of Scripture that is. Uh, and yet there's more drama still to come. If you look with me in verse number 16, the Bible says, "...and the fame thereof was heard." in Pharaoh's house, saying, Joseph's brethren are come. And it pleased Pharaoh well and his servants. And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, Say unto thy brethren, This do ye, laid your beasts, and go. Get you unto the land of Canaan, and take your father and your households, and come unto me, and I will give you the good of the land of Egypt, and ye shall eat the fat of the land. Now thou art commanded, This do ye, take you wagons out of the land of Egypt for your little ones for your wives, and bring your father, and come. Also regard not your stuff, for the good of all the land of Egypt is yours. The children of Israel did so. And Joseph gave them wagons, according to the commandment of Pharaoh, and gave them provision for the way. To all of them he gave each man changes of raiment, but to Benjamin he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of raiment. And to his father he sent after this manner ten asses laden with the good things of Egypt and ten she-asses laden with the corn and bread and meat for his father by the way. So he sent his brethren away and they departed. And he said unto them, See that ye fall not out by the way. And they went up out of Egypt and came into the land of Canaan unto Jacob their father and told him, saying, Joseph is yet alive and he is governor over all the land of Egypt. Jacob's heart fainted, for he believed them not. And they told him all the words of Joseph which he had said unto them. And when he saw the wagons which Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of Jacob their father revived, 
And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is yet alive. I will go and see him before I die. The Lord's help this morning, I'd like to preach to you a message that I've entitled, Joseph's Empty Tomb. Joseph's Empty Tomb. They say the only certainties in life are death and taxes. It's odd to think about really how much of a role death plays in this physical life. The older we get, the more acquainted we become with it, don't we? We spend a whole lot more time in funeral homes than any of us would have ever wanted to spend. I spend, as a pastor, a whole lot more time in hospitals and hospice facilities and and in cemeteries and praying with grieving families who have lost a loved one. Just yesterday, I uh, was there by the graveside of a uh, of, of a man in our church and uh, alongside of his children and his family as they were grieving. And, and, I, and I think to myself that uh, the, the, the culture in which we're living probably has made us more aware of death than, than any other culture at any other time before it. The social media world has brought the world closer together, hasn't it? And, uh, and, and for that, we can be thankful. There are some advantages to that. But because of it, we now, we now know and hear about much more heartache and sorrow and difficulty than, than any, other, any other culture or group of people before us. As, as people use their social media platform to update and to let people know what is, uh, what is happening in, uh, in, in their lives, as they share things with, uh, with those that are connected to them in that social media world. And as a result, we've been made more keenly aware that death isn't just for older folks. It's a very present reality for all people. Recently, I had a man in my office, and his sister-in-law passed, and I would guess when she died, she was in her late 40s, maybe early 50s. As he sat down, we were talking, we were catching up, hadn't seen one another in a while, and I just expressed my condolences. I'm so sorry. I said, it just, just doesn't seem right. And he looked at me, and he said, he said, what are you talking about? He says, young people die all the time. And the truth of the matter is, I had to agree with him. There are, there are situations that unfold in which folks that are younger, and you name the age, and it's funny, the older we get, the, uh, the, 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 uh, the you know, it's, 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 I'm sitting here going, I'm not as, I'm not as old as maybe I thought 40 some year olds were when I was a young boy. And, and so age, I guess, is somewhat, is somewhat relative. But I'm, I'm just here to say that, listen, it is a, death is a very present reality for all of us. What makes death so hard? What makes death so hard, of course, is the finality of it. No more phone calls. No more meals together, trips, holidays, birthdays with that individual. To never hear from them, never to be able to hug them, to laugh with them, to give a gift to them, or just to be near them. These, these thoughts that enter our minds bring, bring with them unimaginable pain. When Jacob's sons came back, Carrying Joseph's shredded, blood-stained garment, Jacob assumed that his son was dead, and the Bible says that he rent his clothes, and he put sackcloth upon him, and he mourned for many, many days. Jacob never had a chance to view Joseph's lifeless body, which probably added another level or dimension to his grief, and perhaps kept him from being able to ever heal properly. Two decades had come and gone since 
this event since he saw that coat that was torn to pieces, that was blood-stained. And yet the scars from Joseph's perceived death remained in Jacob's life. As you you read this, this story of Joseph and you're getting a glimpse of what's happening in his life in Egypt and then you're getting a glimpse of what's happening in his family's life, uh, there in Canaan, I, 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 I think to myself that Jacob is a very, very fragile man. He's overly protective of his youngest son, and he, his sons are convinced, his sons are convinced that his next great heartache will likely be his last great heartache because that heart just can't take much more. This is the, this is the reality of what jo- Jacob's life has been uh, for, uh, for more than 20 years. And, and I just have to tell you, heartache and sorrow can do that to a person. When you, when you visit a cemetery, you don't expect anything to happen there. To be frank, you hope nothing does happen there, don't you? When you go there, you, uh, you don't expect to have uh, any encounters whatsoever. People perhaps go to a cemetery maybe to clean the, the grave and the area around the grave out of respect for their loved ones. Maybe they go there to plant or to place some flowers or some even, some even go to sit and, and, and talk. Several years ago, I was doing a, uh, was doing a funeral and I ended up at a, at a graveside and, and as we had conducted and finished the, the graveside portion, I was making my way back to my car and and the, uh, the funeral director pulled me aside and he said, hey, pastor, he said, I want you to see this. And he, he said, do you see that little path there? And right there in the midst of all of the green grass, there was a, there was a path that was clearly marked and it, it was sort of full of kind of, it was brown grass, it was trodden down. And, and he said, do you, do you see that? And I said, yes. And then he says, look a little bit further than that path. And he said, do you see right there at that grave, there's, a, uh, there's, a, uh, there's, there's some food over there and there's some beverages. He, he said, he said that, uh, that person was a young man who died tragically, maybe a car accident if I remember correctly. And he told me, he said, his parents come every single day. They bring him food and they bring him something to drink and part, I guess, part of their, part of their culture and, and uh, part of, you know, part of what, what they do and, and I, I don't know if you've ever been around anyone like that or had an experience like that, but, 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 but some, again, they, they go to a cemetery for, for those types of reasons. And, and maybe, again, just to sit and to talk, they, they're not expecting to hear an answer in return, but, but maybe they just want to communicate with someone. This is the reality of death. It is silence. It is finality. It is sorrow. And it is long-term scars. But you know, a a casual reading, you don't have to do a careful reading. A casual reading of Scripture reveals that there is life after this life. You don't have to be a a Bible scholar. You You don't have to study the Word of God for years on end to come to that conclusion that what you and I are living in right now is not all that there is. There is, there is something beyond this uh, for each and every one of us. We may not be able to communicate with those who, who have passed from this life to the next. We may not be able to see them or, or touch them. But listen, as believers in God's word and in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have confidence that the souls of our loved ones live on. And at some point, listen, at some point, the bodies of our loved ones will be raised, some to eternal life and sadly, some to eternal suffering. Say, where does the Bible say that? In the Gospel of John, chapter number 5, verses 28 and 29, 
Jesus made these comments during his earthly ministry. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good under the resurrection of life and they that have done evil under the resurrection of damnation. Acts 24 and verse number 15, the Bible says this, and have hope toward God, which they themselves also allow, that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. Revelation chapter 20 and verse number 12, that I saw the dead, small and great. That just means those that are known and those that are unknown, those that are wealthy and those that had much prosperity and those that had very, very little and everyone in between. I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God and the books were open and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according according to their works. The Bible, listen, the Bible leaves no doubt whatsoever that life on this earth is not all that there is. The scriptures are clear that God alone has the power to give life and he is capable of restoring life again even to those who have died. The Bible gives, by the way, the Bible gives 10 examples, 10 illustrations, 10 specific events or times in which people had died, but they were brought back to life. Jesus, during his earthly ministry, raised three from the dead. Elisha, the great prophet in the Old Testament, raised two back to life. Elijah, uh, Elisha's uh, mentor, raised one back to life. Uh, the Bible tells us that Peter and Paul both raised one from the dead. And the Lord God himself raised Jesus from the dead. And he also raised many Old Testament saints who were raised by God the Father when when Jesus breathed his last breath on the cross. I'm just saying, listen, the Bible is full of illustrations of resurrections. I, um, I think to myself then that imagine the shock of Joseph's brothers when they learned that the man who they were talking to through all of this was their brother Joseph. Joseph had to instruct them as he revealed himself to them, I am I'm Joseph. The Bible, the Bible says that they were, they were in awe. He had to instruct them, come near to me, verse number four. And they were so shaken by this reality. It was, almost, it was almost as if they had seen a ghost. They led, they led their father to believe that Joseph was, was dead and they refused to ever acknowledge what they had actually done or what actually happened to Joseph and they did that for so long that it seems like they maybe might, might have even began to believe their own lie. Genesis 42 and verse number 13, they said, Thy servants are twelve brethren, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father. And one, speaking of Joseph, they said, He is not. That means, that means he, is, he is nothing. He does not exist as far as we know. In Genesis 44 and verse number 20, Judah is speaking. He says, and we said unto my Lord, we have a, we have a father, an old man, and a child of his old age, a little one, and his, and, his, and his brother, speaking of Joseph, is dead, and he alone is left of his mother, and his father loveth him. Jacob was certain, was convinced that Joseph was dead. And his sons were fairly certain about this themselves. And now, now they were being spoken to by a man claiming to be him. This must have been a very surreal experience for them. 
Joseph immediately tries to calm them down and to assure them that God had taken this, what they meant for evil, and God had turned it into good. And then Joseph gives them a job to do. He, he, he tells them, listen, I want you to hurry back to Canaan. I want you to retrieve your possessions and your families and retrieve our father and, and, and bring, bring all of these things back to Egypt and, and where I'm going, I'm going to take care of you for the rest of your lives, but especially for the next five years of this famine. But this presented a slight problem. The problem is this. Jacob had lived in Canaan all his life. He was now an old man, and he was frail and somewhat fragile, as we've already mentioned. How in the world are they going to convince this old man who's lived in one place all of his life, how they can convince him without, without him actually seeing Joseph with his own physical eyes that Joseph is yet alive? And then to be able to convince him to make this long journey from Canaan down to Egypt, how are they going to do such a thing? 20 years, he'd been certain that his beloved son was dead. Now he was going to be told that this wasn't true, but that Joseph is yet alive, that the tomb that, that, that they had buried him in, in their own minds, that tomb had been empty all along. Joseph hadn't really died, that Joseph was alive, and that Joseph was well. Sons of Jacob rushed back to Canaan with a message about an empty tomb in Egypt, Though this tomb had never physically held a dead body, it had been very, very real in their minds. And it had brought just as much heartache and sorrow as if an actual death had taken place and a physical, literal body had been placed in a tomb. But the tomb was empty and had been empty all along. This truth, listen, this truth would alter the rest of their lives. And there's some great spiritual truths that we can learn from it. Number one, I want you to consider as we walk through this text, the message from those who had seen Joseph's empty tomb. The message from those who had seen Joseph's empty tomb as they returned back to their father, the Bible says that they told him in verse number 26, Joseph is yet alive. First part of this message, I can only imagine they probably said, dad, you probably need to be seated. Have you eaten a good meal today? Is everything okay? Your blood pressure's not up. Everything is as it should be. Dad, have a seat. We need to talk to you about something. I can imagine Jacob wondering, what? What's going on? Why do you look so, why do you look like you've seen a ghost? What is happening? Dad, sit down, please. Next, four words. Dad, Joseph is yet alive. Can you imagine Imagine being certain that your child was dead for 20 years. You've mourned for him. You've carried a broken heart for more than two decades. You, you've, you've gone through all of the stages of grief. And as we heard a few weeks ago, there, 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 really, is no, there, there really is no getting over something like that. The, res- the other resurrections in the Bible that we, just, that we just talked about, the vast majority of them came very quickly after the initial death. What sets this one apart is the length of time between the presumed death and burial and the news of a resurrection. And yet the words spoken by Jacob's sons were too good to be true to be believed. The Bible says that he did not even believe them. Very clearly, verse 26, his heart fainted for he believed them not. Joseph is alive. Second part of that message 
is not only that Joseph is alive, but they repeated this, but dad, he's not only alive, but he is thriving. Look what it says at the end of, in verse number 26. Joseph is yet alive and, and he is governor over all the land of Egypt. <laughs> now, now, when they had sent him away to Egypt, what was he? He was a slave. That's what they had sold him to do. That's what they would have assumed if he was still alive, he would have been serving somewhere, probably as miserable as can be. And yet imagine, not only is he alive, but he is thriving in this life. He is governor over all of the land of Egypt. There's only one person in this world that has more power than him in a physical sense, and that is the Pharaoh himself. You know, the heart of a parent isn't just for their children to live, but our heart is for our children to thrive, isn't it? In other words, none of us in here want our children just to be making it. None of us want our children just to be barely getting by. No, we want our children to be thriving, don't we? We want them to be succeeding. We want them to be doing well, whether they're students or, or, or whether in their marriages and their own homes and families or whether in their, in their careers. We, we don't just want our children to just have life. I mean, certainly that's a part of it, but we want our children to be succeeding, don't we? We want our children to be thriving. And here was the message, the message from those who had been to this tomb. They had been down to Egypt and they had seen that the tomb was empty. And here was the message that they brought back. Dad, your son Joseph, he is yet alive. But listen, he's not just, he's not just some servant or some slave. He's not just barely making it. He's not miserable in life. No, no, he is thriving. He is a governor over all of the land of Egypt. And that really is the goal in life. We do, we want our children to be happy. We want our children to be healthy and loved and successful. And that was the news that came to Jacob. And to be honest with you, it was too good in his mind to be true. Couldn't believe it. This can't be. Because when someone dies, it's final. They don't come back from that. At least not in this life. Jacob had long ago come to the realization, I'll never throw my arms around my son and and hold him again. Jacob had long ago understood, I'll never sit down at a table and enjoy a meal with him again. I'll never hear his voice again. I'll never be able to give him a gift. I'll never be able to celebrate the day of his birth with him again. None of those things will ever happen for me again because that's, that's the reality of death. And so imagine when these boys returned with a message from an empty tomb that he is alive. Not only is he alive, but he is thriving. But as we said a moment ago, Jacob refused to believe it. His heart fainted. It was too is empty. Would you look with me in verse number 27? And they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said unto them. Notice the next phrase. And when he saw the wagons, which Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of Jacob, their father, revived. The text is clear that Jacob was not convinced that the tomb was empty. In his wildest dreams and imaginations, he could not have imagined this to ever be a reality. He did not believe them, though they carefully told him all the words that Joseph had said to them. Jacob continued in doubt. Until. Until he saw the evidence of the wagons that Joseph had sent. Wagons that were weighed down with gifts and 
food from the land of Egypt. You see, this was a time when most of the world was struggling just to survive. We're two years into a seven-year-long famine in which unless Joseph is in his position of power, most of the world, if not all of the world, would die of starvation. Very, very few people were living comfortably in this famine. And so the fact that his sons had returned with, with, with wagons full of gifts and, and, and nourishment, that stood out to him. It was at this point that Joseph put aside his doubts and believed what he had been told. This evidence was sufficient that there certainly must have been a resurrection. Maybe my son wasn't dead after all. And maybe he really is alive and well and thriving in the land of Egypt. Because of the finality of death, the announcement of a resurrection will certainly, be, will certainly be rejected without evidence. And therefore, Joseph's brothers were sent back to Canaan with wagons full of evidence to corroborate their story that Joseph's tomb was empty, that he was indeed alive and thriving. You see, listen, their word alone wasn't sufficient. There had to be some evidence. Jacob would have continued in a spirit of doubt except for the wagons that backed up their claims. Can I show you the third thought that I find in this text? We've seen that there's a message from those who had seen Joseph's empty tomb, that there was evidence that Joseph's tomb really was empty. And thirdly, I want you to notice with me that there's a reaction to Joseph's tomb being empty. Several things that Jacob does here in the next few verses that are done in reaction or in response to the fact that his son that he perceived had been dead for all of these years was actually alive and he was well and he was thriving. The first thing that we discover he does is found in verse number 28 and we would identify this as rejoicing. Rejoicing. Would you look with me? It says in Israel said, it is enough. It is Enough. That, that phrase literally carries the idea of him saying, saying this, him saying, much multiplied. Jacob could hardly put into words what he had heard and what he had learned. What he had at first rejected and refused to believe, listen, was now his great hope and it was his great cause for rejoicing. Listen, it is very possible. It is very possible that Jacob had not rejoiced like this for 20 years. That he had not had a moment like this. That in every moment in which there might have been a sliver of joy and hope for, for, a, for a bright future was constantly, listen, was constantly overwhelmed by the shadow of the fact that Joseph, his son, his beloved son, was dead. Have you ever received such good news that in the moment you received it, every earthly burden, every earthly weight vanishes away? Have you ever been on the other side of things? When you're dealing with something so great, so overwhelming, that even when you hear good news, the back of your mind is just constantly troubled by whatever burden it is that you're carrying. That, that, was, that was the burden for Jacob for all of those years. Tell him, hey, you had a great year financially. Your flocks and your herds are doing better than ever. You've been able to accumulate more wealth and you have more servants at this point this year than you had at this point last year. Jacob would only shake his head and perhaps say something like, well, that's great. That doesn't really make me happy. How can I smile? How can I rejoice? How can I celebrate 
And the great love of my life is gone. It's been stripped from me. It's been robbed from me. It's been taken from me. And I'll never get it back. And yet, on this day, oh, there's much rejoicing. There's much celebration. He says, it is enough. Everything else pales in comparison to this, to this moment there's rejoicing. But notice, secondly, not only is the reaction a reaction of rejoicing, but notice it's a reaction of faith. Would you look with me in verse number 28? He says, it is enough. There's the celebration. Much multiplied. Joseph, my son, is yet alive. Here's the faith. I will go. I will go and see him before I die. The journey to Egypt was a hard one. In these days, oh, certainly made a little easier by the wagons that Joseph had sent along and the nourishment. Jacob, on two separate occasions, had commissioned his sons to make this trip while he remained at home. That's how hard of a trip it was. That's how difficult it would have been for him to make it. He had spent the vast majority of his life in Canaan. That place was the the promised land. It was the adopted homeland of his father and his grandfather, Abraham and Isaac. It was the place that they had been laid to rest. It was the place that they had been, mar- been buried. He, he didn't want to travel too far beyond there because of the connections he had to that place. You, you sort of know what I'm talking about. I was talking to somebody recently, and they were talking about the home they grew up in, the home that their, their parents still lived in. And they said something to this effect. They said, I hope my parents never sell that house. And I said, why? And they said, because I have so many memories there. So many memories there. Don't you suppose Jacob had a lot of memories in Canaan? Memories of time with his, his granddaddy, Abraham, his grandmama, Sarah, his, his daddy and his mama, Isaac and Rebecca. He had memories there. By the way, this was the, this was the land where God told them to go. And every time, by the way, every time they seemed to have left that place, there were problems and issues. Don't you remember from the life of Abraham when we looked at Abraham's life? Every time he sojourned, he wandered away from Canaan, there were problems and issues. And now, now Jacob was being told to leave that land and to go to Egypt. Don't you suppose it would have taken quite a step of faith for Jacob to do that? And yet, listen, listen, when he came to the realization that Joseph was yet alive, his heart was filled with rejoicing. And then it was overwhelmed with the spirit of faith. And he said these words, I will go. It's faith. I will go. Jacob would never have moved from this place except by faith, believing that Joseph was alive again. We see evidence that Jacob was a little fearful about making this trip. Would you look with me in chapter 46? Look in verse number three. God actually had to come to him and kind of had to calm his fears a little bit. Look what it says in verse number three. And he said, I am God, the God of thy father. Fear not to go down into Egypt, for I will there make of thee a great nation. Let me ask you this question. Is there something that God is is, is speaking to you about? Is there something that God is leading you to do that is a little scary? Ever been there before? It's a, little, it's a little fearful to do certain things, isn't it? Maybe there's some things that God is leading us in, some things that God is wanting us to do. It might be a little, a little scary, a little bit, a little bit terrifying for us. That's where Jacob was. Egypt was a, a place that only caused problems in his life and in the life of his family over the years. Now he's being told, go there. He's on his way. He's making the journey, but it's still 
seems like he has a heart that is filled with fear. And God comes to him and says, I'm God. And I understand you're afraid. I understand you're full of fear. But don't be afraid. I'm with you. This is, this is the direction that I'm leading you in. The reaction to Joseph's tomb being empty was one of rejoicing, was one of faith. Thirdly, and notice, lastly, it was one of sacrifice. Would you look in Genesis 46 and verse number one, and Israel took his journey, that's another name for Jacob. Israel took his journey with all that he had, and he came to Beersheba. And notice what he did there, and he offered sacrifices unto the God of his father Isaac. On their way to Egypt, Jacob stopped in a place that is a familiar place if you're a student of the word of God. He stopped in a place called Beersheba, and there he offered sacrifices to God. This was a special place in his life as it was the same place that his father and his grandfather had also previously built altars and worshiped the Lord and and a place where God had appeared to them. The Bible says in Genesis 21 and verse 33, and Abraham planted a grove in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. The Bible says in Genesis 26, 23 to 25, and he, speaking of Isaac, went up from thence to Beersheba and the Bible says that, and the Lord appeared unto him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, thy father. Fear not, for I am with thee and will bless thee and multiply thy seed for my servant Abraham's sake. And he builded an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord. Jacob is acknowledging that the same God, the same God who led him and had led his, uh, had led his father and his grandfather, had sustained them, was doing this exact same thing in his life. The same God that his father and grandfather worshipped in that same place he would worship and sacrifice to also. What, what led all of this to be? What precipitated all of this? The miracle, listen, the miracle of an empty tomb. He was so overwhelmed by it that he, that he paused for a moment after rejoicing and after exercising his faith. And he pauses for a moment to offer sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. As we conclude this morning, surely, surely you can make a personal connection to the story, can't you? Can you not see the overriding, the great overriding spiritual truth in all of this? While Joseph's tomb was only a figment of their imagination, can I remind you that the tomb of our Savior, Jesus, was a real place where his real body lay lifeless for three days and three nights? He really was dead. Jacob just thought Joseph was dead. He'd been alive all along, but but he didn't know that. Listen, our Savior Jesus really was dead. Oh, I I know, there's there's some rumors that circulated during the life of Christ that that his body had been stolen, that his disciples had come and taken it under cover of darkness. I'm not exactly sure how they would have been strong enough to overcome the Roman centurions that stood guard outside the uh, the, 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 the grave. And, I, and I'm also wondering, you know, there, there was a seal, a Roman seal that sealed his grave. I'm also wondering why they were never held accountable for that. Those are some good questions to ask yourself when you are tempted maybe to believe that maybe, maybe Jesus' disciples really did just steal his body and he's still dead today. There were some that even, there were some that even made up a rumor that he hadn't actually died on the cross, that he actually just, he just fainted there. And, and, and when they laid his body in that, in, in that tomb, because it was maybe a cooler place that his, his, his spirit revived and he, and, uh, and, and he just returned to a state of consciousness, but he had never actually died. And the Bible is clear, none of that is true, that he actually did die. He had to die. If you and I are gonna, if you and I are gonna enjoy eternal life, he better have died on that cross. The Bible says that they took his, 
his lifeless body down from that cross and they, 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 they hastily prepared it for burial and, and they intended to come back later and to, and to give it a proper burial. But because of some of the Jewish holy days that were going on, they, they stuffed the body in the tomb and the stone was rolled in place and was sealed and the centurion stood by until, until early on that Sunday morning. When the earth began to quake and when crazy things started happening and that stone rolled away and Jesus emerged from that grave. Jesus is alive forevermore. Jesus, listen, I want you to know something. Here's the message from Jesus' empty tomb. He's alive and he is thriving today. Praise the Lord for that. He's no longer dead. He lives and he lives forevermore. And and here's the point, here's the point. Many are saying, well, show me evidence that the tomb is empty. I've, I've been there, but you, many of you haven't. And you know, that's a, that was a long time ago. And the critics and the naysayers would say, well, you know, that's just a, you know, that's just a cave. How do you know? How do you know someone was really buried there? There have been people, there are people, maybe even someone here today who's sitting in this service and someone has proclaimed to you the truth that Jesus is risen and that he is alive and you've, and you've said, I won't believe it until I have some evidence, some proof. The point is this, the evidence, the evidence church family for an empty tomb is that people see the life of Christ alive and well in us. That they see, listen, they see the transformation that he makes in our lives. See, I can tell someone, I can tell someone all day long, he's risen, he's risen, he's risen. But until, listen, until it makes a fundamental transformation in my life, will they ever believe it? See, people are looking for evidence that the tomb is empty. They're looking for evidence that Jesus is alive and that he is thriving. May they find it, may they find it as they look in our lives. And by the way, what is the reaction? What is the reaction to the fact that Christ's tomb is empty today? Number one, there ought to be some rejoicing. Listen, if this doesn't put a smile on your face, nothing will. If this doesn't fill your heart with joy and gladness that, that, that cannot be taken away from you, nothing will. People are living for the craziest things. The other day I pulled some I pulled some money out of the bank. I'd gotten paid, and, and uh, we, you know, we, we do a few things maybe that maybe you wouldn't do, but I pulled some money out of the bank, and I was holding it, and I was looking at it. You know, I was overcome with this thought. It's a piece of paper. That's what, the, that's what this is. It's a stinking piece of paper. That, that's all that it is. And don't you dare come and try to take my paper away from me. But that is what it is. People are living for that. You walk out to that parking lot and you're going to look at that car and you're going to see it. You know what that is? It's a bunch of steel and plastic. <laughs> Probably more plastic nowadays than, than anything else. And you know what's going to happen to that thing? Someday it's going to sit in a junkyard somewhere. You're living for that. You're going to drive to your house and you're going to pull into your driveway I love my home. I really do. It's a, it's, a, it's a simple little place, not much to it. Live not far from here. I love my house. I'm thankful for it. But you know, it's just some wood and some bricks and some vinyl. <laughs> That's all it is. One of these days, one of these days, somebody's probably going to move out of it for the last time. 
They're going to say, it's not worth living in this thing anymore. Tear it down and build something else. Is that what you're living for? Living for your job? You're living for your next big, big deal, next big thing, next big promotion in life? It's in all of those things. At the end of the day, they're nothing. They're nothing. But Jesus is different. Jesus is eternal. And what he offers us is eternal. And that ought to fill our heart with rejoicing. Where are the Christians who will stand up and say, it is enough. That's all I need. It's enough. The tomb is empty. My Savior lives. It is enough. Rejoicing. And then there's faith. There's faith. Some of you are holding back. Some of you, God has spoken to you about a matter. And you said, I need to do that. The empty tomb, when we, under, when we truly get it, we truly understand it, here's what the empty tomb does. It, the empty tomb produces a spirit within us that says, I will go. I will go. I'll leave my comfort zone, as Jacob did. I'll, I'll leave Canaan. I'll go down to Egypt so that, I can, so that I can wrap my arms around my son again, who I thought was dead, but he's alive. I, I didn't realize that he'd been alive all this time, and he's not just alive, but he's thriving. I will go. Oh, the empty tomb... All over this world, we have people that used to sit in these pews, and they left here, they left here to move to a foreign land, to learn a foreign language, to live in a foreign culture, and they're ministering among people who aren't just like us, who don't live just like us, who don't just think like us. Why would they do all of that? Because Jesus' tomb is empty, and they responded to his call by faith, and they said as Jacob did, I will go, I will go. No regrets. There's no regrets there. Sacrifice. Sacrifice. Is there anything? Is there anything that is off limits to my Savior? Is there anything that, of mine that he cannot have? If he wants it, it's his. Why? Because the tomb is empty. Because he lives. He is alive. And he is thriving. And the reaction to that, listen, the response to that is one of rejoicing. It's one of faith. It's one of sacrifice. I'm just simply saying, listen, when you've, when you've, seen, when you've seen the empty tomb, some of you just, you've seen it through the eyes of faith. You've seen it as you've read in the scripture. You've seen it as you've looked at the lives of people that you know Jesus has transformed. When you've seen it, it changes everything. Nothing is ever the same. That's the reaction. That's the response. It's what God did in Jacob's life. If God did that in Jacob's life over something, a resurrection that wasn't even real, he had been alive all of this time. Well, how much more? How much more rejoicing, church family, should we do? How much more faith should we have to say, I will go? How much more sacrifices should we be willing to offer because he truly is alive? He who had been dead and been buried is alive. He lives today. He's thriving today. May those truths produce the reaction of rejoicing, and faith, and even sacrifice. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed for just a moment.